All right, so this morning we're going to be a little bit all over the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, I want to start in John chapter 4, though. Remember, Jesus has this, uh, this moment with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And he, he starts his conversation with her, and you know he starts by saying, look, I know that you struck out five times, and I know that the man that you're with now is not your husband. And he has this conversation with her, and she's realizing, obviously, there's something special about this man who knows so much about my life. And she says to him, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. And and, and she asks him, you know, my people worship here in Samaria on this mountain. Your people worship down on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Where is the proper place to worship? And Jesus gives this, like, simple, sweet explanation of what worship is. And he says, a time is coming, this verse 23 and 24, And it's now come, it's now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. The ones who worship in spirit and in truth. See, more than workers, God is seeking worshipers. He is drawn to, moving in the direction of people who are worshiping him. He wants to move us this morning us in our lives every day from wherever we are into a direction of worship. He wants our days to be directed by worship. So it doesn't matter if you've struck out five times, 50 times, 500 times. God is ready to move you into a place and on your journey to worship in spirit and truth. So at the end of this encounter, this woman becomes like an amazing billboard for Jesus. She goes into the town and she proclaims to the people, come and see the man who has told me everything about my life. Come and see, could this be the Messiah? Which is really a statement of her saying, this must be the Messiah. And the people, they come and they believe. But it's beautiful when she goes because she says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see. See, it's this emphasis of she left the water she had because she has received the living water. And it changed her life. Divine intervention in a moment, her life has changed forever. And then all the people, because of her, believe. They come out and they say, you know, first we like we came to see because of what you said. And now we've seen with our own eyes. And now we believe. So Jesus showed this woman love and truth. And I want to say this morning that all worship is prompted by love and truth. She received the love and truth of Jesus and her worship outwardly to share the words that he had spoken leads others to come to know him. It's a beautiful thing. And that isn't that what the gathered body of Christ is all about? Worshiping, reflecting back to Jesus the good that he has done in our lives. So, you know, a lot of people want to argue about what worship is. You know, I've been in churches where people say, you know, if you have, if you have drums, that's not worship. If you, only, if, you, if, you only, if you don't sing hymns, it's not worship. Or, or if you only sing hymns, it's worship. Or you have to have this Bible and this thing and, and this way. And these are arguments. These are futile arguments. But I want to say, I want to tell you what I think the essence of worship is. I think the essence of worship is the echoing back to God, his attributes. See, we were made in the image of God. In the image of God, we were made, male and female, in the garden. And so that image of God is a bit corrupted because of the fall of man. 
because of the sin in our lives. So as we echo back God to God, his own attributes of love, peace, mercy, gentleness, self-control, compassion, as we echo back to him his own infinite worth, it's worship. So the essence is us reflecting back to God. I like to call it an echo, as God is like screaming down his attributes. We see in the Bible that it's, it's everywhere, right? We see in creation that God's divine attributes can be seen everywhere. And so as he is shouting down his attributes and we reflect them back by how we interact with each other, how we interact with God, how we interact with our hearts, that's what worship is. So we could argue all day about whether a guitar is worship, but really it's our hearts echoing back to God the truth of who he is. That's worship. So there are two roads in the Bible where I see encounters that people have that lead to a moment of awesome worship. One in the Old Testament with King David and one in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. And I want to share, with you, uh, share those with you this morning. So it starts in the Old Testament, the Israelites are battling the Philistines. And you know, an interesting point about this is they're battling the Philistines at a place near a place called Ebenezer. Now, Dan mentioned this morning um, something that, that Pastor Robert says all the time. It's God's path, past faithfulness. Can you say it, Dan? What is it? Demands our present trust. God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. So what an Ebenezer is, see, they would, they would go through these incredible times. They'd you know, cross through the Red Sea or cross over the Jordan River or win a battle, and they would erect this, these rocks. And these rocks would be known as an Ebenezer. And the, the idea is that no matter what happens as they go past the rocks, as they go into their future lives, as they go and they experience what the world has around them and what God has for them, whenever they see these rocks, they say, God was faithful to me thus far. And so it's a reminder of God's past faithfulness, which demands that we worship and follow him today. It's a beautiful thing, but it's kind of a, a, an interesting thing that, that near the, the city of Ebenezer, the Israelites fail. See, they go to battle, and they lose the battle, and then they go back to their camp, and there's these two guys named Hophni and Phinehas, okay? For the younger people, it's not Phinehas and Ferb, okay? <clears throat> it's Hophni and Phinehas, and so they're the sons of Eli, who's one of the judges of Israel. And they have, they're, they're the ones that are the, the caretakers of the ark of God, and so <clears throat> they, they, they decide that they want to treat the ark of God like a lucky rabbit's foot. And they go, they say, you know what, let's go back to Shiloh, let's get the Ark of God, and let's take it to the front lines. Surely, if we take the Ark of God to the front lines, God will give us uh, victory. He will deliver us from the Philistines. And the Ark of God goes into the camp, it goes into the camp of the Israelites, and they roar. And the Philistines are like, oh no. And they, because it says in the word, it says that they had heard that this is the God that did the, the, the miraculous things in Egypt. And so they were afraid. And then somebody... Somebody in the Philistine camp decides, you know what, I'm going to give a pep talk to the Philistines. They pep talk the Philistines. They, they go out and they battle the Israelites and they destroy them. 30,000 men die that day on the battlefield for Israel. Hophni and Phinehas die and the ark of God is stolen. So there's one man who says, well, my job maybe must be to be the bearer of bad news. 
So he runs back to Shiloh and he sees Eli, who um, it says he's about, blind. I, can, I can really relate to Eli at this time in his life because it says in 1 Samuel that he is, he is blind and he is heavy. And I'm like, I feel that as I get older, I can't see anymore and I love to eat. And so he's sitting at the gate and the guy comes up and he says, 30,000 died. Hophni, Phinehas dead, and the ark of God has been taken by the Philistines, and it says that he fell back in his chair, broke his neck, and died. And he says, well, I'm going to keep going. So he goes to Phinehas' wife, and he says, your brother's dead, 30,000 dead, your husband's dead, your father's dead, and the ark of God has been taken. And she was pregnant. It says that she gave birth and died. But before she gave birth, she did a wonderful thing. She named her son Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. Look, I grew up with the name JC, J-A-C-Y. If I had a dollar for every single time somebody asked me, is it JC or JC? I would be a rich man. Even on the thing last week, it said, welcome Pastor JC, like Macy, okay? <laughs> so, Dad... I know you're watching this morning. Thanks a lot, pal. But you didn't name me Ichabod. Praise be to Jesus. And so, silver lining, silver lining. Uh, it wasn't quite boy named Sue, but it, uh, it did make me tougher. Um, so then now the Philistines, everybody's dead. There's a kid named Ichabod. It's a crazy time. And so now the ark of God is taken into the Philistine cities. See, there's five cities of the Philistines right now, and they take it to this one called Ashdod. Now, the ark of God, they take the ark of God, and they put it in the temple of Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. And it goes into the temple of Dagon, and they wake up the next morning, and guess what? Dagon is on his face before the ark of God. No surprise. And so they say, well, it must have been an earthquake. I don't know, some young kids came in and vandalized it, whatever. So they set him back up, and the next morning they come in, and Dagon is on his face again, except this time his head and his hands have been separated from his body, and they're on, they're on the threshold as, he, as you enter in. And they're like, so maybe something's going on here. Maybe this is something. And then uh, everybody starts to get tumors on their bodies. And then rats infest the city. And so the people of Ashdod rightly say, let's get rid of it. And so they send it to another city, uh, another Philistine city called Gath. And the people in Gath receive the ark thinking like, look, we captured this thing. This is a great thing to have here. It's a, it's a sign of power. And they get tumors and rats. So they're like, uh, this is gross. So let's send it on. And so they send it to the city of Ekron. And the city of Ekron sees it coming. And they're like, no. No way, bro. We're not doing this. And so they send the ark of God. They decide to send it back to Israel. So in their wisdom, these men, these five cities, they come together and they say, let's send the ark of God back. We'll send a peace offering. So they do something kind of gross. They take molds of the tumors and the rats, and they make gold versions of them. And they send five gold rats and five tumors back on a brand new cart pulled by oxen that have never been yoked. And they send it, and they send it to the city of Beth Shemesh. 
And so it goes over the hills, and the, the people in Beth Shemesh are, are, are working the field, and they see the ark of God coming over, and it's like, yes, the ark of God has returned. And the people of Beth Shemesh see the gold, and I, I don't know what their, their, their idea was, but maybe they were looking for more gold, or maybe they were looking to see if the Philistines had stolen anything. So they opened the ark of God. Who has seen Indiana Jones? Okay. Probably less melting faces, but, the, but 70 people dead next to the ark. 30,000 dead, 70 dead. So the people asked the question, the people of Beth Shemesh asked this question in verse 20 of 1 Samuel 6. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? They're scared. They have a proper fear of the Lord in this moment. And so they take it to a man named Abinadab's house. I don't know if there's anybody expecting children here today, but as we go through this message, you may just grab one or two of the names, <laughs> put them on a piece of paper into a hat, and maybe pick one out. There's a... <laughs> There's some good Abinadab. And so, so it goes to Abinadab's house. And at Abinadab's house, it, it flourishes. It flourishes. And this is the same time where David has just conquered Jerusalem. And he is saying, I want the ark of God in the city of God with the people of God. I want it there. But he recognizes that 30,000 men have died and 70 have just died. And you know, you may ask yourself this question, and I know a lot of people ask themselves these questions when they hear some of these stories in the Old Testament, or when they think about what's happening now today, and they say, you know, what, what kind of God, they always start with that what kind of God, which always sets me on edge a little bit, but they say, what kind of God would allow these people to die? What kind of God kills these people? And I want to answer it. I think there's a good answer. Because he is a God who said, I am holy. And when I speak, you understand my words have eternal consequence. And I said, do not come near or touch the ark or surely you will die. Isn't it why we preach the gospel today? Because we know that the words of God have eternal consequence. We know that there is, in Acts 4.12, it says that there is one name under heaven by which we can be saved instead of Christ Jesus. And if we believe that, we believe that his words have eternal consequence. And we know that God loves every single person that has walked on this earth. And it is our delight to share the truth of Jesus with the people so that they can come to know him as Savior. So his words have eternal consequence. The word of God has eternal consequence. And we can take joy in knowing that our God is a God of his word, he's never changing. He's perfect. And so look, so David goes, and he wants to go get the ark. And he goes to the house of Abinadab, and they, David does something just like the Philistines, and he brings a brand new cart, never been used. And they put the ark on the cart, and they start walking. And Abinadab has two sons, put these in the hat, Ahio and Uzzah, okay, I like Uzzah. 
And so as they're walking, they get to this place called the threshing floor of Nacon. It's where they did the, the, the threshing of the wheat. And, and one of the oxen stumbles, and Uzzah reaches up and touches the ark of God, and he's dead right there. It says that the Lord's anger burned against him. It says in, in uh, verse 7, the Lord's anger burns, burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died beside the ark of God. 30,070, and now Uzzah. And David asks the same type of question that the people of Beth Shemesh asked. In verse 9, it says that David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the Lord, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Like, where will it go? Who can stand in the presence of the ark of God? Who can be in the presence of the Lord? These are all things that are feeding into David's anxiety and fear here. So they take it, and another paper, it went to the ark of Obed-Edom. It went to, the ark went to Obed-Edom's house. And there again, the, ark, the, 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 the house of Obed-Edom flourished. Great things were happening. And David is like, I want the blessings of God in the city of God with the people of God. You know, when David went, when David went the first time to go get the ark, you know how many people he took with him? 30,000 the same number that died in the battle. So this time David takes a handful of men. Takes a handful of men. And this time he brings poles. So the first time the Philistines moved it, they put it on a cart. This, when David tried to move it the first time, he put it on a cart. And this time he takes a handful of people and some poles. You see, the ark of God was never meant to be moved on a cart. The ark of God was meant to be moved by the priests. And on the side of the ark of God are these rings. And acacia wood poles are supposed to be slid through the rings. And then they take it and they put it up under their shoulders. And they move the ark of God on their shoulders and they walk. You know, I love to like, as I read the scriptures, I love to put myself in the place of like when these some certain things are happening. Like I would love to be there when the feeding of the 5,000, right? But I want to be at the back, and I want to see the energy rise as the baskets move all the way back, and the people are getting excited and fired up. I'd love to see Jesus walk on water. I'd love to see all these things. And hopefully, I know that we all, I think we probably all desire that there's a movie theater in heaven where we get to watch these things, right? One of the things that I want to go into that movie theater and watch is I want to watch the faces of these men that have just seen 30,000 people die, 70 die, and Uzzah die as they go to touch that wood as it's been slid through the ark. You know, uh, I was a corrections officer for 14 years, and I have felt the power of a taser. I can imagine the fear of grabbing this is like, it's anywhere from taser to death. And these guys in faith, they reach down and they pick up the ark of God. And they take one, two, three, four, five, Six steps, and they can't go a step further. They stop and they worship the Lord. They offer sacrifices to God. They stop because they are overwhelmed by the grace and love of a holy God that has given them this moment. They are in complete awe of what he is doing. See, everything up to this moment was man trying to do it his way. Taking the ark to battle, a reverence with the ark, trying to move the ark on a cart. 
See, God isn't seeking religious people that do religious things their own way. God is seeking worshipers of himself. And so they do this and they experience God in a way that they have never experienced him before. And you know, sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you try or how many people you take to do something. If you're not doing it the Lord's way, it's never going to work. Some people make their relationship with God, and I'm the first to admit that I do this all the time, I make my relationship with God harder than it needs to be. I spin my wheels trying to earn his favor. He's just seeking worshipers. We create unreasonable expectations for ourselves. We live as debtors instead of free people. I know if I surveyed every one of you and asked you, would you rather live in debt or would you rather live debt-free? we would all say debt-free. But yet sometimes we put this yoke of debt on ourselves. And the, 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 the worst part is we put a yoke of debt to our Savior on our shoulders, and it's a, it's a debt that cannot be repaid because it was a free gift in the first place. The gift of God is grace and mercy. And if we try to put ourselves under debt, we are not living as the free people. So he is really just seeking worshipers. We don't earn God's favor, we echo his love. We don't earn his favor, we echo his grace. We don't earn his favor, we echo his mercy. So Paul has the same kind of experience, but in a completely different way. See, remember before, before Paul's conversion, he hated the church of Jesus Christ. It's likely, it says that when Stephen, was, when Stephen was killed, the first Christian martyr, when he was stoned to death, after preaching the truth of Jesus, that Paul was the one, he was Saul at the time, was the one holding the cloaks of those who stoned him. Which a lot of people believe, a lot of theologians believe that what that meant is that he was the one that was in charge of the stoning. That he essentially authored the stoning of Stephen. And then he went and got letters from the chief priest to essentially a warrant to go out and round up Christians and bring them back to imprison believers and probably kill them. And then in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Paul's life forever is changed in this moment when he encounters the risen Christ. See, this divine intervention wasn't just a moment of revelation for Paul. It was a radical reorientation of his entire life. See, our lives are changed the same way, by encountering Christ. First at salvation, and then daily through his word, through fellowship, through prayer. And here, here's, the, here's the crazy part, is it's divine intervention. I mean, the grace of God is divine intervention in a life that was set against him. You know, it says about our lives that we are opposed to God before we're saved. We're not just, no, I'm not religious. No, we are opposed to him. Like we are working against him until we are saved by grace through faith. 
So we have this divine intervention that happens in a moment of our lives where we come to know Christ as Savior. And then there's this divine intervention that Jesus is asking for every single day. He is longing to give us every single day, but it happens through his word, it happens through fellowship of believers, and it happens through being in the truth and seeking the truth. He wants this divine intervention for us. And he has a way of giving us these unexpected Damascus moments, these Damascus road experiences. Some of them are grand and some of them are tiny, but they all are working to change our lives. See, Paul, now he's Paul, still called Saul, but he rose and was baptized in verse 18, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and of, of those who called upon the name of Jesus, and he has come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See, Paul's, Paul's transformation is both instant and a process. We call this, you know, salvation and sanctification. See, after his encounter, Paul spent time in prayer and fasting and learning from other believers. We see Paul do this again later when he's with Barnabas. And, and the church with James and Peter and these guys, they want to send them out. And they spend time praying together, fasting together, eating together, and laying hands on. We know the power of prayer, don't we? We know that it changes lives. And so the power of prayer is happening here. So his salvation is immediate and a transformation. It was a process that involved three things that I want to encourage us with this morning. It involved community, involved humility, and involved a willingness to grow. See, as we long for this life of worship, see, we want to move out of thinking that worship is a thing that happens um, Sunday at 10 a.m., you know? I mean, I, I fell into that for years, that worship was this thing that happened at 10 a.m., you know, at my church, and then I went through the week, and then, oh, I need to go to church so I can be refilled again. The reality is we want to make a life of worship. We want to echo back God's attributes to him all the time, constantly, every day. And so, Paul did it through these things. And I want to parallel it with David, through community. Your community matters. The people you have around you matters. The people you surround yourself with matters. See, David took 30,000 men to move the ark, and it didn't matter because it was the wrong people. Paul is living this life um, uh, persecuting the Christian church, surrounded by religious people, but it's the wrong people. So when they surround themselves with the right people, they do the right things. They're able, it's, it's easier for them to live a life of worship because they're surrounded by the right community. You know, we weren't made to do this alone. God's plan for the New Testament believer is the church. We're meant to do it together. What, I look at like our church here. We accomplish, 
I say we, I'm going to lump myself in already because I just, I just want to, I'm just grabbing on. I'm like, look at what we did last year. You're like, you weren't here last year. So what? I'm here now, right? Like, I, I, I want to be all of it. I want to be all the stuff that I've seen. I've seen you guys for two years. There's a reason I'm here now, okay? I've seen the love that you guys, and, and I remember seeing like, you know, this church has grown so much in the last two years. Praise God. It's such an awesome thing. But like, you were pulling off some stuff that people shouldn't be able to pull off. Like, you were doing ministries that like, how is this church doing this ministry? Because it's the right community. It's the right people. You surrounded yourselves and invested in the right people. God is good. The second thing is humility. Both Paul and David can acknowledge they're wrong. Both Paul and David had to realize that they weren't seeking the truth. Because the truth was for David that he needed to use the poles. He knew that truth. That truth was written down. That truth is in Numbers chapter 4. It's something that a man after God's own heart should have known in his own head. But you know what? He just wanted to go get it. He wanted to rush it. He didn't have the humility in the moment to say, it's not the, like, this is not the right way. I need, I need to take my time and do it right. We fail, right? Like we fail when we try to rush things. And David failed. And Paul fails because he's not, he's not finding the truth. I mean, he has a little bit more of an excuse here because God hasn't like, you know, given him that divine intervention yet. But when he, do, he, when he divinely intervenes in Paul's life, Paul has the humility to say, everything I did was wrong. Everything. Everything I did before was wrong. And he follows Jesus and he preaches the truth of Jesus. And then the third one is a willingness to grow. And that stems out of humility, right? We want to have a willingness to seek the truth always in everything we do. If we have the right community, we have humility, and we have a willingness to grow, amazing things are going to happen. When Paul does it, he can't help but preach the gospel of Jesus. It echoes the verse in Jeremiah that's like, you know, it's just a fire burning in my soul. I have to let it out. Like, I can't keep it in. It'll consume me. And Paul just lets it out, immediately going into the synagogues, so immediate that people are like, who does this dude think he is? When it happens with David, he's overwhelmed and worships. He worships so much that he ends up, when they get back to Jerusalem and the ark of God is being brought into the city of God for the people of God, that he strips down into his linen ephod. In English, that means underwear. Okay, it's his undergarments. He's dancing essentially, mostly naked through the streets. And it says that his wife hates it. And my wife is like, preach. If, <laughs> if you dance naked in the streets, she's not for it, okay? She's not for it. But David is saying something more. He, he says this in response to her. It almost sounds indignant when he says it. But he says, look, I'll become even more undignified than this. And it sounds like, man, I mean, your wife has a good reason to be upset, man. You were, you were dancing, you know, for all the young maidens to see or whatever, you know. There's a reason she could be upset. But he's like, I'll become even more undignified than this. But what he's saying is, you didn't see what I saw. You didn't experience what I experienced. 
the overwhelming presence of God in this moment that caused me, I couldn't walk more than six steps, wife. I couldn't walk. And he's saying like, if this is just the beginning of what it is to know Jesus, to know God in that moment, there's no telling what I'm going to do. Like, dancing is probably the least of our worries. And so, as Christians, our lives are lived to glorify and worship God. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want, you to, I want to challenge you to put away your carts, pick up your poles, dance in the streets, and echo back to God his attributes. And we will live lives of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the examples of the people in Scripture that have lived lives before you, Lord. I pray, God, that myself, Lord, that I would see these examples, <clears throat> I would see what it means to know you and be close to you, and I would live this life of worship. Lord, I pray that for every single person here today, God, that we would see and recognize the power, the glory, the love, the grace, the mercy, the gentleness of God, and we would desire to live that same life, that we would echo Matthew 5, 16, that we would let your light so shine before men, that they will see our good works and glorify you because of what you're able to do through us. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that hasn't had that divine intervention in their life, that today is the day of divine intervention. Lord, that you are saying to their heart right now, it's time to believe. It's time to give up on the past and seek the truth of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would all live a life of repentance and hope, knowing that you, Lord, are a perfect God who came into this world, who lived a perfect life, who died and on the third day was resurrected and sits at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we thank you for salvation that comes in Jesus' name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.